Welcome back to the Ripe Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor, and in this episode, we'll be taking a look back at the historical record of the internet. These are the cautionary tales that the fathers of the internet told us about. Concentration of services and concentration of routes always seems to lead to outage and doesn't always happen immediately. It's more like uh, watching a seismic zone. The larger the concentration in the internet, the, the bigger the eventual quake will be when it hits. The second-by-second second observations that RIPRIS sits on top of in this pile of history can never be recreated. And so when I look at it, I'm, I'm like, the librarian kicks in and I say, first, preserve that. Uh, replicate it if you must. Make absolutely sure that it is available for future researchers after we're gone, because it is literally the historical record of the internet. The frequency with which analyses where the internet events take place only seems to be increasing from year to year. And at the same time, the appetite for quick and insightful coverage of these events is also growing. As a result, those in the business of researching and communicating about the internet are often up against it to find the right tool, visualization, or explanation that will give the rest of the world the clearest insight into the latest outage or shutdown. And all that activity can be really useful and leads to a lot of valuable articles and reports. But sometimes it's good to look back at the internet itself and ask how it came to be prone to the kinds of events we see and why it survived in spite of them, at least so far. As well as talking about his own rich experience in analysing and chronicling the internet, my guest in this episode, Jim Cowie, makes, I think, a very eloquent case for the need to preserve our ability to understand the internet that we have now in the context of its own historical development. Jim has been researching and measuring the internet since the 90s. He was the founder and CTO of Renesis, where he and the team produced intelligence on internet outages and other similar events. In 2016, he went off into the world of quantitative finance, this time found in deep macro, but he's since returned to his earlier roots, and in 2022, he took on the voluntary role of resident advisor with the Internet Society. Here's our conversation from a few weeks back, where we soon got into questions about how historical measurement data can help us understand why the Internet got to be the way it is today. I started out uh, in the 90s in high-performance computing, doing uh, large-scale simulations, and... Uh, this was back in the days. Parallel Java was a hot new thing. So we were doing very large simulations of, uh, of network protocols. We started doing big BGP networks running simulated nodes. And what we, what we quickly figured out was running the experiments would take hours, but then we'd have these enormous data sets that came out of the simulations, mm-hmm. and we'd have to reduce them down and figure out what had happened and how to describe them. And that turned out to be by far the harder tool-making so we started building tools, and around that time, I realized that uh, Ripe Riz, for example, was collecting real BGP datasets, and we pivoted right around and started using our tools on real BGP data. And at that point, it was kind of off to the races. At some point, Renesis uh, became the home for that sort of data collection and uh, and tool making, tool smithing, and answering questions about it, largely for network operations audiences who were curious about what their networks looked like or who was bigger than who, and those were the kinds of questions we answered initially. Was there actually much focus on internet events and outages back then? Yeah, a a little bit. It was a kind of a different time. We were really early to Mm. this, uh, as was Ripe. Um, There wasn't a popular imagination about the internet as much as there is now. 
internet penetration was, was not as high. We didn't think about infrastructure for sure okay. in the same way. Uh, it was kind of brought home to me. I actually was in the Netherlands uh, in 2001 on 9-11. At the University of Leiden, we were in a conference on internet measurement. And that day, we were looking at, in the ripe data, what had happened to various prefixes in the BGP table for, for lower Manhattan. I remember, you know, we still have the plots on that day. We were able to see internet prefixes being withdrawn and then being down. And the collateral damage, there were things in upstate New York that had also gone down. And it was that first glimpse that you could really see events happening in the routing data, uh, real-world things. Looking back at your articles and academic papers and presentations, you've covered quite a number of events. One that I saw was on, was it Egypt? It was. That was, uh, I think, 2011. Yeah, I mean, if you go back, you know, 10 years before that, 9-11, the only people who were really interested in that were like the National Academies of Science and people mm -hmm. who were academically studying networks. Yeah. By the time we got to, to uh, 10 years later, during the Arab Spring, when Egypt took its networks down and cut off the country, it was, I think, the first time I remember getting calls from newspapers. Uh, so we talked to the New York Times about that event. And we were kind of racing at the time to build the tools to study that kind of event because we had, you know, we were thinking about providers being bigger or smaller. We were thinking about routing alarms on, you know, operators' prefixes, network prefixes. Uh, but here was kind of a different domain of shutdown. It was you know, an event larger than, than one that you would expect to see on the normal resilient internet. Obviously, this huge correlated outage uh, taking all these networks down at once and you have to go back and I remember working on it for a long time with the tools we had, trying to reconstruct minute by minute uh, how these things had gone down. Does it look like a rolling outage? Does it look like an, uh, somebody threw a switch? And these are the, the questions that a journalist would come to us with, trying to figure out the story behind the story. I think politically that was the first um, sort of nation-scale shutdown that I remember covering. Before that, we used to cover natural disaster outages. Yeah. Um, we did coverage of, um, there was an enormous electrical blackout that hit the northeastern United States in 2000, early 2000s that had a, a visible effect. Mm. Um, there were occasionally uh, viruses that would get out and take a lot of computers down, and you'd see the echo in the, in the routing instability, or it, uh, there'd be a fire somewhere that would burn through fiber optic cables, and we'd see it. Uh, but this was the first one that raised it above the level of uh, kind of spot outages, accidental, normal damage to the Internet. Okay. And we, were you already drawing on data from right breasts, for example, for, for those analyses? I'm going to double-check myself that we were using RIS data. It might have been RouteViews data. Right, okay. Okay, so <laughs> let me, okay, I'll have to triple-check. Sitting at RIPE, so I'm giving RIPE the credit. <laughs> Oregon guys will be mad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was because this was, this is the ancestral data of the internet it still exists. It still records all of the history through that time period is still available to anybody who wants to go back and look, recreate the events of that moment. And those were the ancestral data sets at, at RouteViews and also at, at, uh, at RightBriz. One thing that sometimes strikes me, and I guess it's for fairly obvious reasons, but analyses of the internet tend to focus on countries, even though the internet itself isn't necessarily best thought of as being arranged in that way. Is this country-focused approach the, the best way of going about things? 
that's a good way of, of thinking about it. I mean, we see so many, so much analysis now that is on a country by country basis, mm -hmm. because people find it useful. Um, national audiences find it useful uh, as a framing mechanism, because everybody wants to compare outcomes in different countries. Um, but the internet, of course, is not uh, not by and large country or national level organized. If anything, it might have made more sense for us all to think of the internet city by city. You know, the, this is a different way of framing it because, you know, in, in France, your internet experience in Paris and Marseille are two completely different experiences because of the fact that one is inland and is a hub and the other one is on the coast and is a landing station. They're both France, so, but how does that make any sense? France uh, glues together several domains that could be thought of as, as uh, internet markets. But for better or worse, we've ended up with, with uh, national boundaries in our head. The data doesn't have to be that way. Geolocation of internet resources has always been a challenge. Mm. And again, most of us start by looking at registry data. And the registry, the first question that is common across all records is what country it is in. So we start from that as our ground truth, for better or worse. It's a matter of like who's keeping score. Mm -hmm. If a provider is asking a network operator, uh, sometimes we'll have a geographic footprint. They're probably not interested in countries as much as they are a region, but sometimes it is, you know, a, a national telecom will want a country level study. It's not always what's most nat natural. Mm -hmm. um, we, we used to provide uh, market, Genesis market intelligence allowed you to take, go country by country and compare the top providers in each country. Right. And it was often, uh, it was, it was, it was useful to people who were selling transit trying to persuade people to have new relationships in country just to know who was sort of important in a country that they weren't familiar with. Yeah. But, you know, it, the country level is definitely not always going to be the right way to break that down. When, when you do look to country and, you know, you, you set out to kind of investigate the, the shape of its internet, if you like, yeah. what are some of the things you look for as indicators of the health of the internet in that country? Great question. I mean, the, f the first thing that I, that I generally do is go through and try to enumerate all of the service providers, all the ISPs who, who advertise address space, which kind of belongs in that country, and count them up. So that's the first e easy step. Um, but then beyond that, you start to look at how they're interconnected. You can have a very large number of, of uh, providers, and, and that shows that internally, the country has good diversity. There's a lot of different ways that somebody could choose to connect to the internet. And then you have to take a slightly broader view of choice and you look at um, how many different ways are there to leave the country. And often that's where things start to get difficult. In some places that have, are very lucky and have really good neighbors and, and plentiful fiber, there are many, many choices on how to leave the country. Mm -hmm. and you, can, you can purchase capacity from somebody in the country. You can purchase capacity on a uh, something in the ground from somebody outside the country. It, this turns up in the routing table as a diverse set of relationships. And we would count those up. Um, we used to do uh, an analysis of the potential for internet outage that calculated how many different autonomous systems in your country or you know, organizations who, who are sort of uh, make their own policy on the internet for themselves how many of them actually have direct relationships observed with people who are not from that country? That was always sort of the, the, first, the first way of trying to put countries in different classifications according to who had a lot of transborder connectivity 
and who had just a little bit. That country is going to be much more resilient, essentially. Yeah, it's because you, you think about it as as the you have to kind of in your mind you model the damage process that's going to try to take out the internet, and it doesn't. I say try to, but it, you know it could be a hurricane, a power outage, a meteor strike. It doesn't have to be a government action or or unrest or anything. Just uh, how many individual relationships between these autonomous systems that make their own policy, how many of those have to go away in order for the people in the country to really feel it? You know, the internet is, is, a, is this richly connected network, but if you take enough links out of the network, eventually you can't get from one side to the other. And this was an, a rough attempt to, to have a metric that could measure that. You used this when you were looking, uh, when you gave your presentation at the first CAPF mm -hmm. meeting. And I think you just gave the count of how many of those adjacent out-of-country ASE is the way, basically, right? That was That's the... right. It's, uh, yeah, the reason I went back to it is because I'd been, a, I'd been away from internet measurement for a while, so mm. I had to dust off one of the classics <laughs> to, to get back in and take a look at the routing table yeah. to get modern data. You could think of it as the percentage of the surface area of the country that has to be impacted, mm. but really it's a, a, the count is almost what matters more. We used to think about it in, in the Arab Spring period as... You know, how many phone calls would it take to turn this internet off? If it's one, well, <laughs> that internet is going off. If it's five, okay, that's a little harder. I think we eventually said that if you had 30 or 40, which is pretty normal across a broad section of countries, you were probably pretty resilient right. to any one point cause, be that human or natural disaster to taking the internet down. Some countries seem to be uh, extremely resilient in this sense, right? So, uh, for example, my colleagues uh, on Ripe Labs have produced analyses of, of Ukraine that suggest this. Uh, and I understand that the same goes for, for Russia. There are some high diversity countries. Um, Russia and Ukraine were both in the, the set of countries that I think it would be very, very hard to have a deliberate shutdown or an accidental shutdown because there are historically so many cross-border relationships between these autonomous systems. Um, I don't know if I, if I, as I think about it, that, that kind of almost logarithmic scale of the number of cross-border relationships is kind of how I cluster countries in my head. And again, many countries have no choice because geography is, uh, is a tyrant. If you're an island, there are only going to be one or two cable landings, perhaps. And in most normal situations, there will be a provider who owns those, and they're going to be the way on and off. And maybe that's sort of the economic sweet spot. A country like Ukraine has a long history of having um, highways and rail lines and things that connect uh, energy pipelines, uh, energy infrastructure, connecting east to, to west. And because of that, uh, and because of their, of their older history, they just had a lot of connections. And so... When the war started, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's, we observe the internet under stress, under mm. conflict conditions. Yeah. There would be outages for sure, power, damage, and then they do these heroic things to bring them back up. But the Ukrainian internet as a whole, it was never seriously threatened by collapse. And you know, we can com compare that to other, other conflict situations, and it's not that way. There are also certain outages that occur even when you see lots of diversity in a country, uh, for example, I know that over on the Internet Society's uh, Pulse blog, you were writing about last year's outages in, in Canada. Oh, yeah, the Rogers cable. Yeah, Rogers had a, an incident last year. And for <laughs> people who study the Internet, that was kind of a frustrating one because I think, uh, I think uh, Emil studied it as well. It, you basically take a look and um, 
there's a large amount of routing traffic because everybody has lost their paths into this large provider and there's some path exploration. No, there really aren't any routes and then they're gone. And that's not really, it's internet visible. We saw them go, but we couldn't see what was going on inside. But you know, the impacts for Canada were enormous. Fixed line customers went out, mobile customers went out. Yeah. Um, you know, payment services failed, people couldn't use their credit cards. You, only, you saw this ripple effect of everybody who can be taken out by the failure, some failure inside a single provider. And you know, we eventually, over time, heard kind of, oh, there, there was a maintenance problem and something was redistributed into something and something mm. blew up and, and it was fixed. So yeah, not really an internet event, but kind of a cautionary tale about what happens when so many functions are provided by a single entity. Yeah. Um, okay, because so, that's like the interesting difference there, right? Because I, w- I would assume, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but um, Canada's got a very diverse set of ISPs <laughs> and lots of connections to the internet outside of the country, mm-hmm. and yet this still happens. And still happens. Yeah, well, yeah, they broke my metric. They were on the green list. They were not supposed to have an outage yeah. at that scale. It, it's, hard, it's hard to say what to say about big outages like the, the, the Rogers outage or uh, the, the Optus outage that hit uh, Australia, except that you know, these are the cautionary tales that the fathers of the Internet told us about, that having more small providers is always going to be more resilient. It may cost more. It may add complexity, but... In terms of making sure that we don't have the big outages, concentration of services and concentration of, of, of routes always seems to lead to outage. And it doesn't always happen immediately. It's more like uh, watching a seismic zone where the plates are moving, but, but you know, over time pressure builds. Eventually, the larger, this, the, the, larger the concentration uh, in, in the Internet, the, the bigger the eventual quake will be when it hits. That's interesting because I, I think um, a lot of my colleagues here, uh, Emil, for example, spend a lot of time really thinking about uh, networks or autonomous systems in terms of how central they are to, to a country's internet. Um, you know, how much of the internet traffic passes through those networks or, or at least what percentage of, of paths across the internet go through those networks. Sure. It's... it's um yeah, if you, it's hard to figure out what percentage of traffic goes through, but you, you, can, you can sometimes model what percentage of traffic might go through under, under certain assumptions, right? Because in Internet measurement, generally, we, we can't see traffic. We don't own the routers. We can't measure the flow. Some people do and yeah. can. But um, and we're looking at the routes, which show you the skeleton of how traffic can flow. And then sometimes we're doing, we're doing uh, trace routes that show you literally the routers along which traffic has been observed to flow. Mm-hmm. And that leads you to sort of figure out who's more important and less important. Pick two endpoints on the Internet. So if traffic wants to leave a country and go do something else like watch a YouTube video, then based on where those things are located, you can compute the percentage contribution of everybody along the path, sort of right. integrated over a whole population, whoever that is. And at that point, what you want to see is a nice, smooth distribution mm-hmm. with no peaks. Uh, everybody does their part because historically, hopefully, you're in a country where uh, there's lots of small ISPs and they're all interconnected at the local IXP and uh, they're all doing their part to keep the Internet alive. And everybody has dutifully 
who has a business has dutifully bought two internet connections yeah. to make sure the internet doesn't go down. And so there are lots of paths. The graph is very rich and complex. And hopefully that's the case. In which case, the distribution of importance will be uh, pretty flat. Yeah. So what you actually see, of course, is there's this uh, uh, sort of a, a power law distribution where one or two ISPs typically have a really large percentage share. Yeah. And that's the signal that um, they're probably doing a really good job and they're very popular. Yeah. But also they, are, they become the single point of failure. When you're producing an analysis of the internet, what are the basic things that, that you and others in the field actually go looking for? And, and how much time does it take you to, to get the data that you need, given the current tools? Obviously, it takes time and effort. And it, it, it does, yeah. It, take, it takes time and effort, and the, the tools for this, everybody kind of invents their own tools. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like before we had a bicycle industry when everybody built their own bicycle, <laughs> and they were all slightly different, and nothing was interchangeable. And, but the basics are the ability to inspect the routing adjacencies. Um, it's, it's often very useful if you have the ability to just run trace routes, like with Atlas, mm -hmm. into a particular place. Both routing and trace route tend to have kind of modes. So there's, you'll, if you look at a place long enough, you'll recognize the normal way that traffic flows. Um, so to reach a particular provider in a particular city from a, another particular city, you know, say it's 140 milliseconds, and it's kind of like that with some noise throughout time. And then one day, suddenly it's 180 milliseconds, and you know that they've, something has shifted either to a, a different route or to a different uh, path within a single relationship. Okay. It's higher latency. Usually then, you know, some time will pass and it'll come back. It'll, you'll say, oh, there's 140 again. <laughs> and you start to, to recognize these things. Doug Midori did a very good analysis for when uh, the cable came ashore in uh, Cuba. Yeah. And what had been a very high latency con connection suddenly became a very low latency uh, connection. And those are the ones you cheer for, you know. Because hopefully they, it won't go back the way yeah. it was. It's, it's, everybody wants to, to improve things forever. The, the frequency of internet events and outages and, and the appetite for quick coverage of these things um, are both really on the up. Uh, would you say it's become easier to provide useful, fast analyses uh, of these events? For the last few years, I've been on the sidelines watching the experts do it. Yeah. And so... Uh, but it is, I, th I wouldn't say it's easier, but um, in communicating about what happens on the Internet, you, it requires kind of a common language mm -hmm. with the audience. And the, the fortunate thing is that when we started, let's say 25 years ago, the Internet had nowhere near the sort of prevalence that it had in society. Uh, it didn't have the immediacy. People could live without the Internet. The Internet was a luxury. We often would get people pushing back on the fact that we were talking about internet outages during major human crises. Yeah. And now it's not easier, but people get where we're coming from when we say it's important to study the internet because so much of society now really directly depends mm. on the bytes flowing. It hasn't made it easier to talk about infrastructure because infrastructure by definition is, you know, it's buried under the sidewalk and nobody's supposed to have to worry about it. Why should anybody care? about, you know, transit versus peering versus whatever. But the conversations we can now have as internet governance has taken off and then the communities of people in, you know, in, in governments and regulators and everybody who really kind of get the importance of what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, it becomes easier to talk about 
those motivating examples. And so we, we again, you, as you pointed out, we chase events and mm -hmm. we get very breathless and we, we, we want to figure out what, what took down the internet in, in five minutes because, uh, you know, the Associated Press is going to want to know. Yeah. Um, but the longer, it's, it's nice because we, we can now talk about those things and get the excitement and the coverage. Yeah. But then we can, well, I've got you. Let's talk about the conditions that led to this being an outage. There's that long history. There's a history behind the story. And um, I think uh, the, the reporters that cover this beat have gotten a lot more subtle mm -hmm. about wanting to have some of that story to explain the, the context. Because now internet going out has real economic impact. But that history, that story is very technical in its nature, right? And, and so communicating about it with the wider community can be extremely difficult even if they have a stake in getting a better understanding of these things. It, it is hard. I go back and I look at the, the ways I talk to people about the internet in the early days and I'm kind of embarrassed. I rolled out there with technical jargon and yeah, okay. I was always having to back up and back up and back up. The, the tension is between simplification and oversimplification. Mm. Um, so we're looking for metaphors to explain how the internet really works without hiding the necessary complexity. Yeah. Because in some sense, the only difference between um, internet that is failure prone and internet that is pretty survivable is an infrastructure distinction that most people will never see. Okay. Um, it, it's a subtle optimization because having a single provider who can you know, leverage economies of scale and so forth might seem like a perfectly good way to make internet more available and cheaper. And the, the chaos of early internet where everybody built their own ISP and uh, got their own address allocation and then got an AS and then started routing it doesn't look like something that you would necessarily voluntarily engage in if you were going to design the internet today. Yeah. And yet here we are at the end of history looking back at the organic internet, which did grow that way and only has become more centralized over time as the money came in and trying to imagine, could it have been done some other way? What if we just started rationally and designed the internet? The, f the fact that it was messy and chaotic improves the outcome today. It's still baked in, in some sense. That's interesting that you keep coming back to that point through the conversation that uh, understand the internet as it is right now, we have to understand it as a historical object. If we look at the internet today, mm -hmm. it's a snapshot and try to analyze it, like good country, bad country, or whatever simplistic filter you want to put on it. Yeah. It's really not telling anywhere near the whole story because so much of the way the internet operates is the complexity that was baked into it as part of its path that it took to today. Um, and there are examples like uh, I, I did a presentation on uh, the evolution of the post-Soviet Internet. Um, all, I mean, the Internet is broadly all post-Soviet. But if you look at Russia today, uh, they have a very, uh, a very large number of autonomous systems with a very rich set of interconnections domestically and still internationally. And a lot of that came about in the early days because it was chaos and people were, it was very Internet spirit people building their own tiny providers and wiring them together because they wanted internet. And it wasn't until later that this explosion of, of wiring kind of started to cool and Anil and Ross Telecom came into its role as a newly stable uh, uh, top provider and acquired and, and cooled it off. Mm. But, you know, it, it, 
Still today, you can see in Russia's internet the, the signature of that early chaos of soup of small providers. Yeah. And it increases their survivability. You know, it increases the resilience of their network. Um, so when we go out and study, we can't just look at the internet today and give everybody a report card. We actually have to go back into the historical data and be historians to some extent and explain how it is the internet came on shore in all these places and why it took the shape it does. Is so much of that uh, could not be explained in a single snapshot today. You kind of you have to look at the way it, it, it cooled and evolved into its current form. And as you said, there is that wealth of data there that's available so that you can go and look at things that way and get that historical perspective on, on things. Uh, and that's, that seems really appealing as an avenue of research. It is. I mean, I thought maybe I'm just getting old and, you know, I don't, I don't have the Renesis tools or data sets anymore because I've, I've moved on and uh, it, it's, um, it was kind of like being thrown into the, you know, preschool again. I have to basically create tools or adopt other people's tools from scratch and, and pull together the data sets. And it was kind of, it was fun, you know, to go back and, and pull data back out of RIPE-RIS and put everything back together, more so than, you know, if you told me today to build a routing alarms infrastructure or build some country reports, it would be quite challenging. But it was fun to take the historical perspective for a while. And most yeah. of the value in that mountain of data, it's like, it's like having the, the tailings of an old gold mine that are still full of gold, right? But we yeah. just didn't have the technology in the day to go back and get that gold. But today we do. And, you know, back in the day... <laughs> feel so old. <laughs> Back in the day, you know, we did internet analysis for its own sake, and we talked to the technical community pretty much exclusively, with exceptions, mm. and that was it. And, uh, and that's fine because we didn't have tools to do better. So what I wonder about these days is whether we can now go back to these decades of data and re-examine how they evolved and extract uh, standard time series of not only the sort of the size of the internet in places, but also some metrics about the complexity, um, the relationships. Eventually, we started measuring latency. So we have these multi, multi-decade, in some cases, time series. And the hope is we can take those and finalize our methodology. So we, we, with fresh eyes, this is the best we can pull out of this raw mountain of data. And then offer it, shop it around to people who have now studied, by this point, and there are lots of people, who have studied other aspects of civilization, and I'm sure that they would enjoy bringing in the internet perspective. Uh, there's going to be interaction between, uh, most directly between the internet's evolution and the evolution of, of economics. Yeah. And that's, if you want to take a look at what the internet does in terms of promoting or retarding different kinds of economic development. Yeah. This is the time to do that. We now have all the data. We have as much computing power as we could ever hope for. We need to take a fresh look and put extra people to work pulling this data from the other side who had never had been part of our community in the old days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, hey, fresh data set. That's kind of an irresistible attraction. It's interesting because we had the guys here a few episodes ago uh, from, the, from Geode. Um, and they're a group of geographers who, who are trying to do exactly that. They're trying to tap into um, internet measurement data in order to better understand geopolitical relationships. But as they started to, to look into this data, they quickly came to realize that they would need 
to develop a, a more of an expertise in this area. Uh, so they've been working with researchers here at the RIPE-NCC uh, to help them better understand the, the internet measurement data and how it's relevant to their research. Yeah, I think there have been various attempts to, to start looking at that. Um, it's, it's very difficult because if you look at just uh, the, the signal that you get from internet development itself is very hard to use, I mean, compared to other sort of uh, uh, economic time series. Because the internet just gets better everywhere. It's up mm. and to the right. It's better every year. Yeah. And so you can convince yourself of all kinds of things that also go up and to the right that one causes the other or they correlate. And mm. um, it, it, has, it has been a very difficult trek to try to figure out direct effects. Okay. Um, it's probably, yeah, it's, it, it probably is more subtle than our first attempts at looking at uh, just provider uh, number of providers there's there are there are probably properties of the the graph of relationships that interconnect them maybe something about international connections mm. um, which will turn out to have some power as we look back at how that developed in each country um, but again so the, the curse of, of social sciences is, is that you can't run the planet over you can't you don't have control countries yeah <laughs> we only have one planet and it grew the way it did, and now we're forced to figure out how it all works. You can't run the counterfactual kind no, of thing. not at all. Yeah. It's, it's good to get an idea from an, an outside pair of eyes. Uh, how useful it is to have things like um, RIPE Atlas and RIS in place, because like, we tend to, you know, obviously RIPE Atlas is still going strong and, and RIS is there, but we tend to worry about, oh, we haven't got enough coverage in this country, we haven't got enough probes out there, and and, and you know you you trapped him worrying about those problems. Um, but yeah, it's interesting just to get somebody's perspective on these tools from the outside. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I, since I used to have my own tools, I I now feel acutely what it's like not to have any tools, and um, and so I'm I'm really glad to be able to come back and use the tools that are available through Risens and through Atlas. I used Atlas a lot. In when I was studying up to make my presentation for CAPIF one, it's just fantastically useful to be able to uh, get some credits and reach out and do some measurements. And I, I wished we had had that yeah. back in the day. So really, really useful. And then when it's that useful, to ask, you know, oh, is it good enough? It's like oh, you should definitely keep asking the question. But the fact that I can go make ad hoc measurements of latency from a lot of different places, I can just go out and pick ten different probes from different countries and. It's like a superpower. Um, you know, could it be better? It could always be better. And there's this marginal utility question of, and we used to face it with route collectors, what good is one more peering session? Uh, what good is one more probe? And it's, it's this long cumulative experience of getting better. Um, the weird thing about the internet is you can get reasonably good answers about common things using just a little data. You know, you can do meaningful analysis of the gross internet using one BGP collector. No, right. Not a problem, just a few peers. Because um, they will have heard about most of the internet. Um, but then if you're asking questions that have to do with rarely seen routes or backup routes that only get exposed during times of trouble, private routes, um, Different, different paths that are not every day in the table. There is this incremental advantage to continuing to grow. 
And so I think it, it's great to keep growing the mm-hmm. collector environment. Um, it's definitely useful to focus on maybe being specific by connecting to peers, welcoming peers who, who are willing to give you a full table mm. uh, as opposed to just a few routes um, to just maximize the possibility that you're going to see additional surprises as the, the new data pours in. I think it's a great goal to think about regionally wanting to get more probes into countries that just don't have very many. Yeah. Because otherwise, if we, we, we would tend to overestimate the importance of single probes just because they are the single probe. We want to understand the diversity of experience or the lack of diversity of experience. If mm-hmm. there's 100 probes and they all have the same experience, they are in some sense wasted probes, but they're also not because that's really interesting if, if, if their ex- collective experience is pretty uniform. Uh, it says something about the, the processes that work behind the scenes. Okay, so maybe one last question that I would like to ask you before before we start for today. Um, you've talked a lot about the importance of these historical data sets, things like the, the data available through RIS and through RIPE Atlas. Um, but obviously there's a cost to storing all that data and decisions have to be made about what to keep and what to throw away in the, in the face of those costs. What's your outlook on, on all of that? How do, you, how do you determine what's relevant to keep uh, and what can actually be thrown away? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, over time we have come up with metrics that we feel capture some of the relevance. But I think there's always that worry in the back of your head that you, there is some aspect of the data that you might throw away today because it didn't factor into your current methodology. And later on it turns out to be important, maybe... Um, you discover accidentally how to make use of something that was some signal that was lurking there. Or maybe you discover a problem with your methodology and you wish you hadn't thrown away mm. the raw. So and you mentioned geographers. My two favorite classes of people are geographers and librarians. I wanted to be a librarian <laughs> when I was in college. Okay. And, uh, and I failed at being a librarian. But um, librarians have that, I think, instinct of preservation that the the, the, and this is our ancestral data that you're holding on to. It's the early internet that arose out of just a little bit and grew to what it is. And the second-by-second second observations that RIPRIS sits on top of in this pile of history can never be recreated. And so when I look at it, I'm, I'm like, the librarian kicks in and I say, first, preserve that. Uh, replicate it if you must, um, make absolutely sure that it is available for future researchers after we're gone because it is literally the historical record of the internet. Then you get into the gray zone. Well, we've, we, there are derived products. Uh, as we do research, we make derived products from it, uh, slices, dices, unions. Mm-hmm. Um, if the tooling is good, if we still have the code that does all of that, then we start to think about whether we need to save everything. Yeah. Uh, my default mode is always save everything. But at some point, you verify that you can regenerate derived work and uh, move on. But the, the crown jewels, the original collected s- recordings of routing in particular, but also uh, registry history, um, um, the, the Atlas trace route stuff is all experiments you can never run again. Mm. Right? So we have to preserve that. Jim, I think that's a really cool note to end on thank you so much for coming and talking to us today it's my absolute pleasure 
that was our episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed meeting Jim and talking to him about all these things. As usual, notes on lots of different points that came up in the episode are available below. And with that, I wish everyone a happy holiday and we'll be back with more episodes in 2024. Thanks for listening.